Welcome to another episode of the Napping Wizard Sessions. For years, Jimmy Raskin and I have been having conversations like the one you're about to hear. This is possibly the first time we've recorded one, but it often goes like this. We also talk about the impossibility of staying alive financially and emotionally in this city that tries its best to force us out. Broken hearts and broken bank accounts, you know, the stuff poets talk about. But it's always conversations like this one that transcend those flesh wounds. Trading 12s on ideas does more than apply bomb to the traumas of New York City life. They're the very stuff that keeps us here and keeps us making art. It's hard enough to do it alone, so it's invaluable when you find someone who speaks your language. And just as we were studio neighbors in Los Angeles way back when, we're lucky enough to be neighbors now in Brooklyn. So how do I introduce a guy who, on one of the first times we met as I crawled into his Chevy hatchback to hijack another poetry reading, said to me, we're going to be friends forever. I was like, okay, dude. Turns out neither of us had to try. It just kept going. One way I don't introduce him is by listing the accomplishments on his CV, of which there are many, but for what he's worth, nowhere near enough. You can do that on your own by punching his name into a search engine that didn't exist when we first met. Another way I don't introduce him is by starting from the beginning, because that would take some time. But for the record, I sort of did that a few years ago. He was wrestling with various ideas about what direction to go in next, art-wise. So rather than talk him through it, I wrote a critical analysis of his work, plotting what he had done and various options he could consider next. It took about eight months or so without him knowing I was working on it, and I finally sent it to him in an email. About a month or two later, I got a one-word response. What? Although he read the email, he overlooked the close to 300-page PDF I'd attached. Needless to say, we remained friends, found a publisher who isn't ready yet, and he had no trouble with or without my help to take his work in new directions. I also can't introduce him as a guy who picked me up from the hospital a few times, or as the guy who introduced my novel at my book launch, or the guy who, just as I'm about to send a final proof out for an exhibition, says, let me take a look at it first, and sends it back in far better shape than I sent it to him in. I could try to introduce him as a poet and an artist, but those vapid identifiers would put us all to sleep. Or maybe as a kid who once trained to be an Olympic gymnast in the aftermath of the Gaylord II, or who much later, after secretly depositing his epic poem about poetry and physics into the trunk of Stephen Hawking's wheelchair, got his pant legs stuck in the wheel as the physicist made his way to the stage. But he tells those stories best himself, and they're out there for you to find, well, sort of. We both wish they were far more accessible. But that's what this is all about. So the way I've decided to introduce him to those of you who don't know him, and remind others of you who do but haven't heard from him in a while, is to invite you into one of our conversations. His work always starts in the middle anyway, so it's best just to dive in. Let his cosmos surround you and ask questions later about where the hell you've landed. We sat down in the Brick Arts Media podcast studio on January 27th, 2019. He's deep into his psyche, his donkey, with three piercing eyes that opened each one. One at a time, 
showed us three things. In one, he was infinite. In the next, he was a body. Then the third eye paused and remained shut, like a long, blink, cautious and stuck. And in that pause, a psychic crochet. Jimmy Raskin. Oh, wow. This is on now? We're on. We're happening. Wow. Well, this is interesting. It's my first podcast moment. I see you have something there that says slapstick enlightenment. Is that where we're going? Well, I think that's what happened the other night when we were um, having cake, and uh, we both had one of those aha moments like we've had before since working together i don't know when 1990 a long time 20 something 30 30 years of slapstick enlightenment well I'll tell are we you, more enlightened or are we no, more slapstick i think that it's almost like a ratio where the more enlightened you get the more slapstick comes with it there's that idea of the attraction to enlightenment as a form of disappearing and like right before you disappear, you uh, are encased in the cliché, the cliché of oneness, the aspects of enlightenment, which would be stillness, the ego mind going away, the need to express, coming to a halt, desire, fizzing out. And the uh, interesting conundrum is that if you're trying to express yourself on the verge of enlightenment, there's a good chance you're going to be Surrounded by cliches. Well, is enlightenment already a cliche? Yeah. Is there already a package? Oh, yeah. And that's the whole fun part of playing with cliches as objects of possible failure. One would rather be interested in failure than ironic success. Mm -hmm. Subjects of authentic failure are surrounded by cliches, but... You know, the difference is instead of positioning them in highbrow narrative, we are trying to honor them for what they are and in hopes that the stigma of cliché or the naming and identifying cliché disappears and you suddenly feel its essence mm -hmm. and you're overwhelmed and maybe even emotional and then you're embarrassed and then it's a cliché again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so enlightenment is surrounded by this spectrum of cliché, like the event horizon of enlightenment is almost clichés. Uh, all is one, one is all, all that is, is. Right. So yeah. that would be an example of a cliché. Yeah, because the definition of cliché is something to the effect of it's like oversaturation of a sentiment. But one can encounter something for the first time and it feels like a cliché. You know, you get the eye roll. Mm -hmm. But I'm always fascinated by, especially musicians that know how to take a cliché and surprise you with it, you know, Bob Dylan lyric or a George Jones song, you know, wrong is what I do best. Man, they just took that, you know, if you position that in the right moment in time, the cliche disappears, and you're overwhelmed with the simplicity of something profound. 
cliches risk appearing overly simplistic, but if they become profound and simplistic, then that's a moment of enlightenment. And cliches are secret treasure chests of meaning. And I've been seeing a lot of artists in my community dealing with puns. That's when I was like, well, I know why they're working with puns, because they've pushed meaning and interestedness and complexity of thought to its limit. You know, they're approaching 50 or over 50, and they've been thinking hard since they're 19. And puns are like the limit of multiplicity. It's one word, two meanings. Right. If you take plurality to its fundamental, tiniest moment, that's the end of plurality. So I see it as a symptom of the exhaustion of meaning. And I thought, well, I don't work with puns. I like to say puns at dinner. You work with polyphony, though. But then, right, I was like realizing cliches are also at the end of meaning, and I'm, I've been interested in them, too. So there's a kinship of being interested in toying with the end game of meaning in art making and not the assumptions that everything's working. He misuses some terms to get the point across. <laughs> he is about to say something that's never easy to explain. Yeah, I guess the polyphony, polyphony obsession was an early one that I think wasn't aware of why I liked it as I am now, but... Sort of multiple voices. Well, polyphony was my first woe. That's a great word. But I loved it because it's susceptible to slapstick if you pronounce it polyphony. Right. <laughs> so I imagine this character who represents polyphony in a noble way, but accidentally pronounced it polyphony... <laughs> sabotages it, and polyphony becomes a misfire, and it can't function. And phony itself in that use would be already a, a pun. Yes, many phonies here. I'm not an academic, I'm a phony. I'm a polyphony. There you go. Right. We just changed the intro. I'm a polyphony. We, we're a polyphony. Yeah. Meaning me, myself, and I. Yeah, me, myself, and I are completely and thoroughly a phony. Yeah. And... So I love the idea that an operative word like polyphony, which came from reading Barth, he was trying to describe the rustle of language as when language dissolved into this multiplicity of sounds and noises and languages overlapping as a beautiful thing. And the opposite of that is the misfire, that one glaring loud bad poet on a soapbox is the misfire. And then I thought, well, what if that guy in desperateness to want to belong to polyphony calls it polyphony on accident and collapses. Oh, it's yes, a mess. It's Jerry Lewis stumbling into philosophy. So, yeah, that's slapstick enlightenment. Oh, that's invigorating. Oh, that's terrific. I guess from that back to the puns and cliches. Puns is a word or a phrase that has two or more meanings. A cliche is a word or a phrase that has like a lot of luggage. Yeah. It's luggage that we accept. I'd say a, a cliche has this quality of 
desire for it to be meaningful. So if I can just kind of read, because we were going over this text earlier, dealing with the puns to cliches, and as for me, while I side more with the end game of expression, I do this through the lens of an emotional being. That is to say, I have not utilized puns in my expressive career as much as cliches. And like puns, there's a sense of finality to such thought forms. Both are on the brink of meaning. The difference, however, is that puns are self-aware, while cliches not so much. A cliché needs to be pointed out that it is one. Puns come with automatic cleverness entangled in a self-aware finality. Another way to put it, puns are consciously flat while clichés are unconsciously bloated. And yet, in the hands of a tactical artist, puns are seemingly flat. They can be plotted as subversive gateways to larger obsessions upon a higher plane. Clichés in the hands of similar practitioners would tend to have them posed as objects of critique, generating a protective sphere of self-awareness secured with the sensation of irony so as to avoid any trace of genuine victimhood in the project, i.e. being perceived as one who actually truly loves the cliché and its sentiment, slipping past the control of systems of self-criticality and into the fuzziness of feelings. I saw clichés as sacrificial objects and and so on. And then... um, a little later, there's uh, cliches or suspiciously simple notions that behave as if they were highly effectual. There's a sense of naivete with a cliche acting as if it's fulfilled and fulfilling, but really from another vantage point, thinner and flatter. And moreover, cliches are doused with the perfume of emotion. When a cliche is iterated, there's a sense of impassioned belief, and there lies the tragic comedy of cliches in the sense that it wants to be bold yet seems too familiar, wanting too much to cause effect. Clichés dwell in the danger zone of meaning, especially according to those who know better or know when a cliché is one. And I write, now there is a compelling topic to investigate. When is an object of expression exhausted of its effectiveness and redesignated as a Mm cliché? So clichés maybe weren't always clichés. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, they had to start somewhere. But then back to what you're saying earlier about if something's not a cliche, but you hear it and you're like, yeah, that's cliche. Yeah. So that would kind of say that there's a first instance where you instantly know, eh, that's kind of. That's kind of, yeah, that's kind of designated. Like it flattened itself yeah, out or that, something. That. But what's funny about them is they want to be not a cliche. Like cliches have a weird quality. If it had a mind of its own, if it was a living, breathing thing, it would think it's the most profound thing in the world. But we're like, nah, nah, not going to happen. I feel like those that know when a cliche is one versus not is an interesting diagnosis for the quality of expression and artists. And I feel like artists that know exceptionally well what are cliches or not have a flaw. And the flaw is that they are avoiding falling into an unexpected surprise singularity moment when the cliche suddenly can become an extraordinary profound moment. In other words, I'm trying to cultivate an approach to expression where I'm aware of cliches I'm weary of them, but I would love to dive into one almost like in a laboratory under a microscope and see if there's a little trigger where under certain conditions it is a moment of pure expression, connection, 
that's beyond words. Uh, does that make sense? Maybe if we use an example like the one you started with, the all is one, one is all. Okay. Put that under the microscope and... Well, let's see. There's two of them. I got into this whole cliche business because, A, I was identifying with my community of artists who like to play with the danger zone of meaning and failure because puns are, are like that and cliches are like that. So I love the Rimbaud quote, if brass wakes as a bugle, it's not its fault at all. And you can sense that he knew it was arrogant and yet you love it when you hear it, and you know what he means. But that notion of being like, I am beyond the control of even myself, and I am a vehicle of profound things, and I'm even a fan of it, and what, everything that means, we want to love that. So the cliche is believing in that, believing in the mythology of the poet. The other cliche that I was attracted to is the subtitle of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a book for all and none. And I'm like, well, there's a cliche. And then I'm attracted to one that I recently heard from a quote, which is, I am everything and everything is me. All that is, is. All that is, is here. All that is, is there. And all that is, is. And of course, that's by some yeah. spiritual guru. Yeah, no, Dave. You would think. I'm egging you all. <laughs> that is from... And this is where Slapstick Enlightenment came on. So definitely Nietzsche's Zarathustra is not slapstick. That cliche is a subversive cliche. He's saying, take it or leave it. Live or die after, you know, I introduced this new philosophy. Well, a book for all or none, what makes that the cliche? Um, I would say it qualifies, again, it's about the time factor of cliches. If I said, hey, this book is for all or none, you know, you'd do the eye roll. And, you know, boldness mixed with simplicity equals susceptible to cliche, you know, but that poetic attempt to say all in, in something so simple, the haiku, for example, which are brilliant phenomenons because those are taking on the challenge of limited text to say the profound, and they're never freaking cliches. So I was attracted to the all-or-none statement, for a lot of reasons. That's an example of the new philosopher adapting to being a simultaneously a poet to survive by making philosophy now about language and shifting values and all that post-structuralist foundation merging philosopher and poet. Mm -hmm. And to do that, he had to critique philosophy, critique the poet and his vulnerability and remake it as a simultaneous being so that he can say all-or-none and survive, meaning I'm not as vulnerable as a poet that would say, right. this poem is for all and none. <laughs> right. like, get off the stage. Get That's off the stage. Throw the tomato. But Next. if Nietzsche says it, <laughs> backed by a, you know, monster pages, <laughs> then uh, it's not. So that, you know, there's that. And then fast forwarding to slapstick enlightenment with this other quote is that all that is, is. So you'd think it was a spiritual master. Not so much the words, but the idea that they experienced that. See, that's the thing. Like with Rimbaud's quote, brass wakes is a bugle, it's not its fault. The cliche is the sentiment of the words. So same here, right? The whole thing is feels with like a cliche. And yet there, we're on the cusp of enlightenment when the mind obsessed with dualities and nuance disappears and all that's left to say is all that is is and the idea that they would actually have experienced that right is kind of amazing 
And yeah. so with Rimbaud, he experienced he the experienced brass. that sensation of I can't help being who I am as a conveyor of incredible abstraction. Yeah, like I can't help it, and I'm gonna write this in a letter to my lover. Yeah, and that whole brass thing goes back to the bugle can't separate itself from the brass. Almost in the same way, a lot of your work was separating critical distance, the poet, from the poem. Well, that's how the philosopher kills the poet, is separating the poet from the poem and turns it into a technique. But Rimbaud can't, you know, he's no way. Yeah. He's He's like, I'm brass and the bugle. I'm brass and bugle. (laughs) I'm braggle. 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 I'm Bruegel. I'm Bruegel. So, but listen to that. That's interesting. Uh, That's a pun. That's a pun. (laughs) So, and I'll tell you, my friend, this guy sent me a distinct formula of how to create a pun. You take the word, it has potential fun sounding, like, you know, porpoise or whatever. And then you find a word that sounds like it, and then you switch up the meanings, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's this formula for puns, uh, but I got sidetracked there. But as far as like Rimbaud, what was great about that, dissecting Brass Bugle, and I'd love to keep doing work about that and try to actually make, melt, it'd be interesting to just kind of melt, half melt a bugle. Uh Um, (laughs) No one take that idea until I do it. Right. I think he also said it with a violin, if a violin wakes up to see its wood. Yeah. I'd have to find, you know, I'm not yeah. good with, I never did that much research. <laughs> as you know, I am a slapstick as you can get in terms of academia. Right. I mispronounce words all the time. I have what's called phonetic dyslexia. It's <laughs> <laughs> perfect for puns. No, well, I invented that word because I can't pronounce them. Yeah, I did it on porpoise. <laughs> so that was a good moment. I was at a dinner party, and um, it was about kind of enlightenment. And people were talking about, like, spirituality and all this. And then it got – there's a, a friend of mine's kid is there, but he's, like, 19. And, you know, somehow dolphins came into play and their intelligence and all this. And he sort of said, well, dolphins have been known to try to have sex with humans in the water, like the way a dog humps a leg. And everyone's like, oh, I heard that. And there was this awkward silence. And, man, I've been waiting for this pun (laughs) for years. And I just was like, do you think they do it on porpoise? (laughs) Everyone eye rolled. Well, no, it it released the tension in the room. Kept it going. But anyway. All right. So we see with Nietzsche and we see with Rimbaud how they were, how they, what was sort of packed within that cliche. The all and none He's enacting profound difference like as his operative thing, and Rimbaud is about being inseparable. So that's the interesting diagnosis, is that Rimbaud is saying, look, I'm going to indirectly reinvent language and introduce the foundations of semiotics because you know, of his famous poem, Vowels, where he merged a color with every vowel and like stripped language down, you know, made it meaningless, then made it meaningful again. And yet he himself still was caught up in the romantic bubble that I am poetry and poetry is me and go fuck yourself. Yeah, I love the conundrum of Rimbaud because it's almost like when Einstein indirectly through his quantum you know, equals MC square stuff indirectly led to 
on the uncertainty principle, which he tried to fight till his death. You know, so Rimbaud, similarly, is his E equals MC square is his illuminations. And then the post-structuralism took form, which prides itself in killing the author. The author is dead is the mantra. But Rimbaud's like, if he was around, he'd go, no, 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 not yet. You know, the poet, capital P, is still here. But by virtue of him stopping at a teenager to become an arms dealer was his death of the author. So I feel like that's an interesting thing is that All or None with Zarathustra is about difference. Mm -hmm. And so philosophically, it survives the cliché. Rimbaud, brass quote, is designated as a cliché, but it's in a special category. It's shelved where literary people will take it on as a worthy topic tagged as cliche and forgiven for his youth. But I think it, man, it needs to be resurrected. I got to write this down. I got to melt a bugle <laughs> when I get it's, home. We have it recorded. Hey, Siri, melting bugles, <laughs> Brooklyn. <laughs> oh, Fulton Street. <laughs> the bugle melter. <laughs> 1-800-MELT-BUGLES. Doesn't even make Bring sense. your own bugle. Bring your bugle. We'll melt it halfway. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, watch, right. I'm going to get myself tattooed with a certain number, and I'll be like, oh, that's the degrees Fahrenheit of when brass melts. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you get it? Uh, Etched into a tooth. What's that number on your butt? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the temperature by which brass melts. Well, why did you do that? Well, let me tell you. And then I say, if brass makes <laughs> Oh, my God, that's so it's profound. Fault. And it's like, that tattoo See, is such that, a cliche. No, but I went through that much work to get you to rethink this quote. Right. So the tattoo is no longer a cliche. Should I do that? Get my number tattooed Absolutely. on my butt? <laughs> And then Absolutely. do a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. Because yeah. that's how much I want you to think about this quote. Right, to take <laughs> it from this loaded thing and just wring it out and then bring it back so it's like, all right, oh, that's interesting. So very slapstick enlightenment. <laughs> So back to that quote, all yeah. that is. Who, who wrote that? Was it Buddha? No. You know, was it uh, Ram Dass? Nero. So we've had the philosopher. We've had the poet. So I don't know her name, mm -hmm. but I believe I recall she's in the insurance business. Uh -huh. And the quote was taken some point in the 80s. And she um, was on her way to an uh, insurance convention, I believe, in Hawaii, and was driving across the island, and she suddenly was in the hotel, and there was hours of missing time, and it bothered her for years, and she had herself hypnotized. Uh -huh. And I have the transcript, and yeah, so everyone... Of course you do. Everyone in <laughs> podcast land, the smile on Dave's, the nervous <laughs> smile, because he knows what's it. coming. No, no. <laughs> Is, so she claims that a UFO stopped the car, and took her. And the hypnotist asked how. And she said, well, they turned me into light, sped up the vibration of me, and brought me through light. And she asked her to describe that. Mm -hmm. So we went from 
just a practical subconscious recollection of events to in a kind of almost ecstasy type language. So we go from car pulled me over, light above the car, to an incredibly spontaneous poetic mantra, not describing what it's like to be taken, but when the conscious mind was separated from the burden of the body and the thinking mind, which is part of the body mind, that awareness of oneness and the ultimate enlightened state was recorded in terms of language and then talked about being on the ship, whatever. The documentarian took over. So in that moment of becoming, if one forgives that this might have happened or not and says, well, maybe consciousness operates at the quantum level and that sensation of what she quoted here, that she documented with the best words she had. In other words, it was described that her voice changed it became filled of a lot of breath and just suddenly went into, I am everything and everything is me. All that is is here. All that is is there. All that is is. And then poof. So I just was like, because I'm reading this stuff for certain reasons, both fun and uh, research of some stuff. And I was like, wow, accidental poet. Yeah. And like <laughs> this whole idea of slapstick enlightenment fascinated me. I mean, even with the tattoo, it, you know, when she says that, and the first time you hear it, mm -hmm. you think, oh, it's some spiritual guru. Mm -hmm. But then you find out who it is and why she said it and the circumstances that she said it in. And immediately it's like, it's not that it's not a cliche anymore, but it's like, huh. <laughs> you know, you've created the distance in the same way of the tattoo creates the distance and stretches it. So it's actually become interesting again. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Again, am I a, an artist that curates puns and cliches so that, you know, you look at them differently or they're stimulant for more? Or am I a documentarian? And I think of like, again, like we're talking about Bob Dylan, because actually just to plug it, Bob Dylan Foundation just did a story on my friend, the painter Joanne Dome that we edited and we're listening to Cold Irons Bound, and I'm like, oh, my God. You know, these words put at the right time, at the right tempo, at the right moment of the right song, and boom. So maybe in certain ways, the artist strives to do the same thing in, in this type of work. I want my paintings to sound like the music I like. I want my paintings to look like Cold Iron Bound. I want my paintings to look like his, paint, his song sound like. Like Dylan, they're Americana, they're, uh, they're unrefined, and they're sturdy. Some of these things are beyond words for me. I can't really articulate it, that's the reason I paint it. The problem is, how do you do this without irony? How do you turn the eye roll and then stop it unexpectedly on the three-quarter turn and make them eyes roll into the back of the head? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> right. That's my goal. Where they think it's a cliche, they're rolling their eyes, it goes almost to the end, and then they go, oh. <laughs> I can't see anymore. They go blind so with light. <laughs> And like, you know, so after that quote, it says, by the looks of it, this quote appears to have come from a Buddhist monk. I write about that. 
The quote was from the moment she merged with light as a means to take her up, magnificent if real, uh, or perhaps just a practical means of moving a body. Just to elaborate on that, she went beyond the layers of the ego mind and into the singularity of beingness where simultaneity became inseparable, where all that is happening at once was spectacular vividness, all the while still having a sense of self, yet a self inseparable from the one. Consciousness in its pure definition is not the thinking mind. The thinking mind is a product of self-individuation or the self-illusion of being, separateness, difference, simultaneity, duality. But because we all experience this illusion together, it is the assumed limit of reality. And as such, gifted figures like Nietzsche push duality to the limits of how spectacular it can be to be dualistic. The philosopher-poet is an expression of the first and last best duality. Such ferociousness of thought led us to this extraordinary potential of dynamics. What we may have to realize is that the infinite plane of difference, juxtaposition, and flux, where everything is potentially interesting and compelling, is also a limit. It is nothing compared to experiencing oneness when all of that disappears. It is nothing compared to experiencing nothingness. So, you know, I was drawn to her quote not only because it is a worthy cliché, but the whole thing was also worthy of slapstick. She stumbled into pure awareness beyond the duality of perpetual difference where simultaneity takes one last fall into inseparability. So, in other words, I am interested in the accidental quality of it than I am if she experienced it or not. I'd like to know she did, but the arrogance of the mind in its attempt to hold on to duality is going to dismiss this. Your mind is going to dismiss this, but you may not want to dismiss it. You mean with the eye roll, you're dismissing it? Yeah, the eye roll is like the mind going, no. And then we also don't want to assume that it's happened and it affects me and I'm going to talk about it forever at a coffee shop. Us savvy artists have to figure out what to do with this thing. But to take on a cliche like that as a subject in art or thought or whatever, you got to come locked and loaded. You really have to like wring it out of everything. That story kind of reminds me of Out on a Limb, that Shirley MacLaine movie where... Now there's a cliche. Exactly. Well, she's in this pool and she's like, David, I see my silver line. Oh, it's full of cliches. Like, I imagine if this woman, you said she was at an insurance conference? She's somehow involved in insurance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when she told her friends this... Well, she knows she never did. Well, if she told anybody this, I'm sure they eye-rolled. Oh, so, yeah. So her narrating the story is definitely going to produce eye-rolls. It's so cliche. Yeah, everyone who's been abducted is going to say this. Everyone who had a near-death experience is going to say they saw the light and yeah. went to the light and all this and came up with something similar. What you're doing... Yes. I mean, when you tell the story, yeah. as opposed to her telling it, you're already wringing it out. Well, here's the difference. I'm some hybrid of deconstructing it, believing in it, wanting to believe in I it. I want to believe. Jealous, <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Why doesn't my watch stop? Yeah, I want missing time. Where are you aliens? <laughs> Because we talk about the unknown all the time, you know, as romantic. Yeah. And then here's these people freaking stumble upon it. Now, <laughs> it's not fair. It's not fair. <laughs> Artists are searching for this. And, you know, fuck, you know, the whole drug thing. I'm also not going to go look for it too much. 
I might, but say I did, and I went missing, but also as an adventurer, and I became insane and obsessed. Now, that's another place that I'm interested in is that tipping point between being interested in something and, okay, I'm going to stop before I get too obsessed, and I'm going to go back to modes of articulation, things I learned in art practice, bring it back up to the shared plane of expression and show you what I was moderately interested in. The obsession, though, that's where the gold is. You got to go deeper and hopefully make it back. If you're like going up and down, up and down, up and down, and then you get really talented and you know how to make it look interesting or feel interesting, you know, go to an art show and it's just almost too perfectly weird. Yeah, that's the irony. And they can't put their finger on it, and I call it aesthetic intimidation Yeah, because they're really talented. They wouldn't have got there if they weren't. And you're looking around going, am I allowed to just critique this in one full swoop? Which is this. I don't think they went there. I don't think they were obsessed enough. Or they're propagating the aesthetics of obsession, Mm. which is a lot of little lines and little things. And yeah. We're fascinated by those artists that disappear, I think. Salinger, he wrote one book, Goodbye. Well, there was Catcher on the Rye was the biggest. There were probably about five, but then... Catcher on the, around, on, on the East of... was the other one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Catcher on the White Bread yeah, no, wasn't as... Gluten-free. Yeah, there's a gluten-free book. Anywho. Right, so he, he vanished in plain sight. Vanished in plain sight. Rambeau stopped when he was 18. Nietzsche stopped because of syphilis and a horse beating. I don't remember the horse beating. It's famous where someone was beating a horse because it wouldn't move, and he just hugged it with utter despair, and that was too much for the public, and he was hospitalized. But a <laughs> little side note is in Turin, I, that's where it happened. I was part of a performance series, and I was going to do this Zarathustra stuff, and I was walking fast because I was late to something, and there's this plaque, and it's this is where... <laughs> Nietzsche collapsed with a horse. And I'm like, <gasps> I almost died. That's your slapstick enlightenment right well, there, just tell stumbling you why I think you and I are pretty good artists. We know that half-melting a brass bugle, <laughs> right. maybe with some glitter, is going to be a pretty good art piece. Yeah. If I recreated the horse beating in the Turin Square, right. oh, yeah. Jesus. That would be an eye roll. That would be the biggest eye roll of right. all time. But what we don't want is that extra layer of awareness where I know that it's bad. And then we do something else on top of that so that multiple layers of irony. Right. I'm not interested in that because, again, cliches, the beauty of them, they're so simple and vulnerable. I was always attracted to the notion of the poet who can look at a pebble and make that the most important thing in the world. Another thing we could talk about is the difference between surprise and subversion. I've always thought that subversion is surprises dirty cousin. Subversion is surprises dirty cousin. <laughs> Fear driven and blinded by ambition. He's like <laughs> going for a surprise, but in this backward fucked up way. Because he's angry and he was hurt. Surprise is pure. He's this happy, glowing guy. <laughs> and subversion has, like, been tainted. Yeah, but he still yeah. wants to be surprised. Right. And he runs over there and 
manufactures a faux surprise. Ha ha. <laughs> and like, but the whole thing's just like not right. It just doesn't feel right. And that is what I feel like when I walk through Chelsea these days. Yeah. Where's the surprise? Yeah, there um, isn't any. So aesthetic intimidation, remember that when you go see these really good shows. But like, I'm a victim of it too. I'll see some Richard Tuttle times 10 and I'm like, ugh. That's so good, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I think, is Richard Tuttle like one of the last surprise guys? I was thinking about Tom Friedman, and I'm wondering if he's more of like a subversion guy. Yeah. It's like where the joke is so, I get it. Where Richard Tuttle is more like. Dude, that guy loves what he's, like, I don't know. I just know that when that little pencil line goes like off grid and there's a little piece of yarn on it, and now that's overdone, and it's the inspiration for Urban Outfitters' store windows. <laughs> I remember when I started seeing the store windows, there's a Comme de Garçon store. There, the whole thing has got those moments, and I'm like, oh, it's done. But I can't blame people because they know that the pleasurable collapse, it's a visual cliche. But I remember going to see him for the first time. It was at a show when the temporary contemporary, the Geffen, and it was like, 86, and there was all this big, crazy stuff, even early David Solly paintings, which were awesome. And then there was this little green, you know the green one, the famous Richard Tuttle? It's like a half circle, and it's a thing that holds itself up. And it's just, you know, one foot in diameter. And I'm like, there it is. That's why I make art. Yeah. And I was flooded with emotion. And a lot of artists were. And Kippenberger has that. Jessica Stockholder's craziness has it. People zoomed in on that aesthetic real fast. And I wanted to, and I had to pull away. You have permission to laugh. <laughs> you always have. So tell me, what will please you? Tell all of us, everyone. Talking about the cliche, you personified it as this little character, almost in the same way you did with subversion. Mm -hmm. And it seems like one thing that's kind of consistent throughout your work, even with simultaneity and inseparability, you take words and you define them in very specific ways, even the cliche and the pun. Yeah, I give them a characterization. Yeah. That's how I get to know them. Yeah, you take these words and you make them little characters in the same way you did Pin and the documentarian. And the definitions that you use for these words, they're very specific. Someone could look up the word cliche and then they could look at the, your definition and be like, hmm. I didn't know it smelled like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you create these little people. So is that... Well, it, maybe it's a different... Like, I know you have synesthesia, right? With letters and numbers and right, colors, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Maybe there's another thing, which is, like, 
that doctor who, the man who mistaked his wife for a hat. Oliver Sacks. Right, that there's these other conditions. When I see a word as a concept that I'm going to take on, I see a personality. Mm -hmm. And then I try to talk to it. Again, it has to do with a weird degree of sympathy. I love the word thought form. Mm -hmm. Spiritual teachers talk about thought forms. And this idea that cliche is a thought form, and it has a mode of being. And that mode of being is an interesting diagnosis of that concept, thought form, in relationship to the pun. So it allows me to get to know it, but I only do that to things I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah, I think synesthesia is pretty broad to include if you give human characteristics to a word. Like for me, I was experimenting a little bit with musical notes right? and giving human characteristics to an A note, but really through the letter rather than the sound of it. Right. Right, where the sound is just an expression of something deeper of a character that you find. Right. See, that's really fun to find that a cliche looks like that because it's really this. And to find that essence, even if we're inventing it, it's the poet's journey. And I think that's why you and I have these conversations. You know, when I first met you, just for the everyday listener, your studio was next to mine at CalArts. Right. And I peeked through this big hole in the door. And I'd see you, again, do I get this wrong? You Every usually get it wrong. <laughs> well, there was these there little... There were no ma matches. There were, it was pennies? It was, it was something, little sticks? It was little tables. Little tiny, like hundreds of tiny little tables yeah. with little things on them, like little lint. And it was just so... F I was like, oh, my God. Because here's what I saw. I saw the obsessed. I saw the poet, that this piece of lint is interesting. And you're going to look at it because I'm going to make a table for it, right. one inch off the ground. And, of course, just the overall performance of it. And, you know, there's a lot of artists who have dealt with that kind of performative construction where we look again at the lint. Mm -hmm. And I'm just saying, you know, you were doing that 25 years ago. And there's a kinship that happens when you see something like that occurring in your studio next to you that this person's life has been devoted to X amount of time to make that piece of lint interesting. And so that is a quality of being that I identify with. Yeah, and you can see that through the cliche, what we've been talking about and how you're trying to take this thing that people think they know exactly what it is. Is that lint? Huh, there's actually dust mites in there. Yeah, yeah, there's the whole ecosystem. But, you know, so, yeah, I guess that's kind of like uh, the stuff that's kind of, yeah, I think. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to have nap time with yeah. Dave and Jimmy. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see what we got. Bye. It's like a beaming light, streams of light. Are you still driving your car? I just am. I just am. What do you mean? It feels like I'm part of this light. Are you still in your car? No. I feel like I'm floating. And like I'm part of the light. I'm just light. It seems like a transcendence of time.
like I'm moving. I'm going somewhere, but I don't know where I'm going. And it's okay. It's a feeling of movement? Yeah, of floating, of moving through colors, through time, through space. It's very pleasant. Napping Wizard Sessions. I've been talking with Jimmy Raskin. You can find his work, videos, and books at jimmyraskin.com. The supplemental tracks in this episode include Jimmy Raskin, Elastic Centric, George Jones, Wrong is What I Do Best, Jerry Lewis, The Nutty Professor, X-Files Theme Song, Bob Dylan Foundation feature on Joe Ando, Blinded by the Light by Manfred Mann, and more excerpts from Jimmy Raskin's audio works. Special thanks to Brick Arts Media. Thanks for listening, and tune in again for something else.